I'm Kendra Kruger. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 15th, 2014. Coming up, KGNU's Jim Pullen brings us a report from the University of Washington on the Oso landslide that destroyed a rural community and killed at least 42 people. But first, let's have a look at recent science news. Scientists are once again taking cues from nature. This time, biophysics researchers at the University of Michigan are taking a closer look at photosynthesis to design a better solar cell. The mechanism they looked at was how the plant was able to complete such an efficient charge separation, a system used in plants to convert light into biochemical energy and in artificial solar cells to create electricity. It works when an atom's electron absorbs a photon, causing it to shoot to a much higher energy level, where it can then roam around to other neighboring atoms, leaving behind its positively charged home atom, thus creating a charge separation. Scientists say that the artificial systems are good at absorbing light and creating the charge separation, but not at maintaining it for long periods of time. Here, a long period of time being about a hundredth billionth of the time it takes you to blink an eye. To look deeper into the photosynthesis process, they ground up spinach leaves and extracted the protein components responsible for charge separation. They then used a pulsed laser system to simultaneously excite the atoms and take pictures of what was happening. They discovered that the charge separation is maintained due to the vibrational properties of the proteins, sort of like a line of people passing buckets of water will work better if everyone is bending their knees in rhythm to receive or pass the bucket. Scientists hope this information can be used to reverse engineer better artificial solar cells that mimic this highly efficient process. The study was published on July 13th in Nature Chemistry. A four-year-old girl who was believed cured of HIV has suffered a relapse of the virus. She was infected by the virus in utero within hours of her birth and was aggressively treated with an anti-AIDS therapy at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She received a combination of three antiviral drugs for several months, but then missed treatment appointments. For two years after treatment ended, no evidence of the autoimmune disease was found, and doctors hoped that she was cured. This week, researchers announced that the testing revealed that the virus had reestablished itself. Her treatment has been resumed. Researchers say that despite the relapse, the early antiretroviral treatment did retard the disease's development and that a detailed understanding of how the virus escaped detection and reoccurred will help in the fight against AIDS. On March 22nd of this year, a hillside in the foothills of Washington's Cascade Mountains tore away and plunged into the rural community of Oso. 
That Saturday morning, 42 people are known to have lost their lives, and another person is still missing. KGNU's Jim Pullen visited with University of Washington geomorphologist Dr. David Montgomery to learn why this tragedy happened and how well science can measure the risks to mountain towns. We had had our fair share of trouble in September uh, last year, and I remember explaining to folks that uh, that's sort of the sort of debris slides that we saw during the flooding were uh, more common, really, in Washington State. But uh, even I was taken aback by the size of this debris flow. Yeah, although so landslide happened on uh, March 22nd, if I recall correctly, uh, this past year in 2014. And it was, it was a massive landslide that uh, involved the failure of a whole wall of a va- whole side of a wall of a valley that was made out of glacial material or glacial age material, fairly weak sediments that uh, failed as a landslide, mobilized as a debris flow on its distal ends and swept across the valley bottom, um, essentially taking out a, a whole community. It was, it was a major disaster. Um, it was the, force, the force of it was, was horrific, um, and there's a whole community that was not left standing um, after it. Um, it was a large landslide. It was the, I believe it was the largest landslide disaster in U.S. history in terms of lives lost. Um, yeah, I mean, there are evidence of some very large landslides in Mount Rainier and things like that. But Yeah, the Oso landslide was not the largest landslide that's happened in the U.S., but it was the most damaging because of what lay down, down slope and tragically who was there on the day that it happened. Landslides come in all sort of shapes and sizes, and the Pacific Northwest is prone to landslides, uh, as are many mountainous environments. Landslides are a pretty natural process in terms of what helps tear mountains down over geologic time, the erosional processes that sculpt terrain, you can actually read the signature of past landslides in a lot of the topography. Um, And that's one of the things that geomorphologists are trained to do. Now, the hills in that area, these are glacial moraines. Are they, they're not terminal moraines, are they? Uh, they they're lateral moraines? Well, they're actually not moraines. It's, it's glacial age sediment, but essentially uh, the way that the material in the walls of that valley were, were in place is that it can kind of be told if you look at the nature of the material sort of going from the bottom of the geologic pile up to the top. And the stuff at the very bottom of it uh, that's exposed right down at about where river level was uh, was material that was uh, floodplain deposits from the penultimate uh, warm period, the time before the last glacial advance. So at the bottom you have an old river valley about where the river is today. But above that you have this stack of sediment that used to fill the valley wall to wall that at the bottom of it is uh, uh, silts and clays from glacial age lakes. Um, in the Puget Lowland, the sort of whole area around Seattle, back during the last glacial maximum, a tongue of ice advanced out of Canada, overran the region, and rivers that were draining from the Cascade Mountains to the east down into the Puget Lowlands to the west were blocked by this wall of Canadian ice. And what that did is created lakes. And the sediment that then settled out in those lakes from all the erosion that was happening up in the mountains where those rivers were still sourced and the, and the smaller glaciers that were up there, it was delivering sediment down into those lakes. It would settle out and it created layers of silt and clay that started to fill the valley of the Stillaguamish River, the North Fork Stillaguamish in the case of the Oso slide. Um, and as those glaciers kept coming, uh, advancing farther south, they um, deposited what's called advanced outwash sands that were uh, deposited by the streams in front of the advancing ice um, and that redistributed all the fine set the sediment the the sand for the most part in these deposits 
that was worked out of that ice. When the ice melts, the sediment's left over, so the streams that the ice becomes reworks it. So there's that a layer of sand deposited on top of the glacial sediments. And then above that, there's glacial till, which is the concrete-like mix of sort of everything from clay up to boulders uh, that a glacier plasters onto the terrain it overruns. And then above that, there's sands and gravels of recessional outwash, the, the sand and gravel that the, the rivers that were formed by the retreating wall of ice essentially reworked to form the, the plateau that's on the edge of the valley wall, so it's called the Whitman Bench. So at the time that the glaciers had fully receded, you had, the valley was full of this plug of glacial-age stuff. There was clay at the bottom, then some sand, then some till, then, then sand and gravel at the top. Over time, then, the river then cut back down into that whole pile of fairly loose sediment uh, to create the valley that we know today, uh, over the last probably about 15,000 years or so. And what that did is it created a situation where you have fairly weak materials exposed in the valley walls with fairly steep relief because the rivers cut the valley, modern valley back down into it. And then over since at least the 1930s, we've been able to uh, see that the river has been eating away back at the toe of the slope that then failed in the 2014 Oso landslide. So you have this sort of long-term setup of what's the material that, that created the situation where you had potentially unstable slopes above uh, a high relief with a river cutting into the toe of it at the bottom. It's a recipe for a big landslide. Kind of walk us through uh, the evolution of the landslide as it's understood. Well, there's still reports coming together. Um, there's a, a committee that I'm on that is, will be releasing a report sometime in the near future. The U.S. Geological Survey has been doing extensive studies of the landslide as well, and I believe have a report or papers in preparation on that. But, but the gross overview of sort of generally what happened there, I think, is fairly well established at this point. Uh, the lower half of the slope failed fairly rapidly and catastrophically uh, as a debris flow or debris avalanche that ran across the valley bottom and that caused most of the damage. And there was a, a subsequent failure that, that failed higher on the slope that brought more material down but didn't run out that full length across the valley. Um, and, and people are still working on trying to figure out exactly sort of what pieces went where when. But how do we know about those two phases? Well, a woman named Kate Altstadt at the Seismic Network Station um, in our department here uh, at the University of Washington, within days of the event, had analyzed the seismic signal, the ground shaking from this massive landslide. And she determined that there were essentially two phases to this slide. Um, it's you know, very solid seismic data, um, and so people have then now been going out to try and piece together uh, on the ground, well, how can you map the geology onto uh, essentially what happened? The, the great destructive power of the slide uh, arose from it, its essentially liquefying and, and turning from a sort of solid hillside into a rapidly flowing mass that swept across the valley bottom in less than a couple minutes. It speeds the USGS has um, estimated it. You know, exceeding, approaching or exceeding 60 miles an hour, if I recall their their estimates right, um, and they've had sort of the the good look at the deposit and the sort of distal end in the when they were involved in the, the search and recovery efforts initially and helped guide those efforts. You know, in terms of factors that uh, contributed to this, I mean, the most obvious proximal factors. We had a really wet March. I mean, we had a record rainfall in the month of March in the in the Northwest, and there's a lot of rain over the previous three weeks, uh, three or four weeks uh, at this site. The previous fall wasn't all that wet. Um, the slide itself happened on the sort of the first sunny day of spring. In terms of other factors that may have uh, contributed to it, you know, people are still analyzing, and will probably need to analyze for some time and at some detail, 
what other potential contributing factors might have been. But the things that you you might suggest or look to would be, there's been media uh, uh, speculation about the role of forestry, say, in the slide. And what we can, I think, be pretty certain of at this point is that the loss of root strength to the material on that slope didn't really contribute. Why not? It was too big. It's too big a landslide. And what happens when uh, you have uh, landslides that involve, say, just the superficial soil on a hillside, then the roots could actually be by helping to bind that together. And there's very clearly documented and mechanistic studies that link that sort of causal logic together. But that doesn't really apply to this site because it was too big a slide and the root strength would be too small a force across too small a portion of the whole thing to really be a first order influence. So how might forestry have contributed? Well, if it did, it would have been through the changes in the hydrology to the site. And that's something that is, is more complicated to study because you need to know well, what was the hydrology of this whole stack of sediments, how that, what was the cut history in the area, how much did that affect the recharge to the groundwater, um, and how did the sort of the, the actual rainfall that hit the site then over the last few years, or in particular in those critical three months, how could that possibly relate? Um, and we haven't looked into that in, in detail. It would take um, a fair bit to look at that. But what does seem to be clear from the pattern of uh, historical slides, because this, this slope had actually failed before. There's reports of it failing back to, I think, 1952 is the first geotechnical report on the site. Um, and if you go back and look at air photos from 1933, the earliest air photos, that portion of the hill looks pretty wet. And at that time, there was still old-growth timber in the immediate vicinity. So we may have a place where we had the hydrology was naturally, uh, set it up to be naturally very wet, that the river was cutting the toe out of it, and that all just complicates trying to assess, well, you know, pointing to a single contributing factor as the thing that made it go, other than obviously the rain without which, um, you know, if the, the hill was completely dry, this wouldn't have happened. I suppose one has to also look at the, uh, the history of slides, and which is written in the geological record. Um, what's the recurrence interval uh, for a slide of this size? No, it's actually a great question. It's exactly the question you sort of want to know to assess the risk from something like this, but it's a hard question to answer usually, and including in this case. Um, and the reason it's hard to answer is that uh, you don't necessarily have the full history of what the past slides were, or even the ones you can read in the terrain, where you can see evidence for them in the topography. It can be difficult. You, you may not know. You may not have a date that actually you can say, well, this one is that old. Uh, so what could we do at this site to try and assess that? Um, if you look at the, the LIDAR data, the laser or altimetry data, uh, which gives you a, you, from which you can make a digital model of the topography that is really crisp and clear relative to the kind of models that we've had of topography in the past. Um, you know, mo most of your listeners may have, uh, if they're old enough, they've uh, seen those sort of green uh, USGS uh, seven and a half minute quadrangle maps that we would take hike that I would take hiking when I was a kid so we could navigate. You know, now, of course, we have GPS and other things, so I'm, being, I'm dating myself here. But, you know, people have, have seen those. That level of topographic resolution is about what we had up until about the year 2000 in terms of our digital models of topography. The things you could do to try and assess the hazard from a landslide remotely without going out and doing geologic fieldwork on it. Um, today we have the LIDAR data, and it's like a brand new set of glasses. Um, it, it, the, the form of the land pops out in a very crisp way, so you can better connect our understanding of the processes that shape topography and the forms you actually see there and also invert that to say oh that's an old landslide of this type and so it ought you know that behaved this way 
in the past, but we don't know the date, we don't know the age. So, and to do that, you essentially want to carbon date something or, you know, or have a first-hand account uh, for things that are more recent. Um, and so with the OSO slide, we can actually, or in that portion of the valley, we can look at the LIDAR data for that valley and we see evidence of old slides. There's a colleague of mine at the USGS named Ralph Halgerud who um, essentially went through and mapped for that area the generations or the phases of landslides you could read in the form of the terrain. And he classified them into four different you know, youngest to oldest um, old slide, or slides in that valley bottom. But you can't get from the LIDAR data what that number is. The answer to your first question, how old were those slides? Or to turn it around, how often might you think they would be expected to occur, their recurrence interval? Um, and uh, one of the things I was able to do uh, in May in a, in a field visit to the site was able to get carbon date out of the, um, from some, uh, from a log that was buried in the wall, the exposed wall of the Oso slide. Um, which gives you an age constraint on a neighboring slide because that's what it's eaten back into to expose. So it's not a direct control on when the last time the Oso hill slope went, but it's a control, it's a data that allows you to help estimate how old some of those oldest age class slides that Ralph Hagrid mapped were. And if those are about 5,000 years old and there's four generations of them, then if you take 5,000 years and divide by four generations, well, on average, every 1,000 years or 1,200 years or so would be sort of a simple, very simple-minded way to estimate a recurrence interval. But it's a reasonable way uh, to get kind of a handle on it. Um, alternatively, you could look at the total number of slides up and down the valley on his map and divide by the same thing. There's different ways to try and do that. But you're, you're talking about things that don't happen every decade, although at that, that slide, the smaller slides were happening every decade. The 5,000-year date is for, the, is for a really large, one of these very massive ones um, having happened. Um, and we know that there's younger ones that were even bigger that were massive in the valley because there's one just to the west of the Oso slide that shows up clearly in the LIDAR data that's in Ralph's age class B, his second youngest. Do we know how old that one is now? No. Um, but with old-growth timber growing on it, you know it was at least centuries old. So, you know, it's you know, more than centuries, less than 5,000 years. That's a pretty big window, but it gives you a sense of the order of magnitude. Those kind of events might affect that portion of the valley at least once every few centuries to a few thousand years. Now, is that a risk that, that society is willing to run in terms of where houses might be situated? Or a risk that an individual would be willing to uh, take on for either themselves or their family or, or their descendants in terms of, of property ownership? That's not a geological question, right? But for people to be able to answer that question for themselves, they need to know those kinds of facts. What is the hazard? What's the nature of the materials uh, in the land where they may be living? How it might behave in the future? How it behaved in the past? And what kind of risks may be run in what, what kind of areas? And that's one of the, the, the things that geologists really try and do and the, the kind of information we can help bring to society. Can we estimate the risk along all of the landforms where there might be communities? And is that sort of study being undertaken? Well, you know, uh, estimating risks for landslides all throughout the, the, the West is actually a pretty uh, complicated and high bar thing. We should be aspiring to try and do that, certainly. Um, but there's many different kinds of landslides that carry with them many different kinds of risks. Like with the Oso slide, one of the things that I think probably made it um, um, so dangerous in hindsight was essentially the amount of silt that was in the, in the lacustrine or the lake sediments at the bottom of the geological pile. Um, most lakes you tend to get a lot of clay in. 
um, these lakes had a lot of silt, and that silt uh, uh, we think was was uh, potentially liquefiable, which was what may have contributed to the travel distance in terms of um, how far it went this time. The prior slides at Oso had not gone anywhere near as far. So there's things about how the same slide can behave at different points in time that have radically different consequences. So it's not just a question of understanding the nature of the hill slope, the nature of the hazard, and its potential recurrence interval, but how do you actually forecast if it's going to change behavior in time? You really need to understand how the time sequence of failures may affect the future failure. And now you're starting to get pretty complicated. Um, so the, the problem of you know, realistically assessing the risk, so anybody in the Northwest or another, other landslide-prone regions like the Rocky Mountains or the Appalachians, would, so that anybody could know anywhere really what that risk is, um, that would require a very major, very major effort. Um, there was a move back in, I think, 1994 when the National Research Council endorsed the U.S. Geological Survey proposal to enhance uh, the National Landslide Hazard Assessment Program. Um, and the rec they sort of went through it, reviewed it with an eye towards trying to provide the kind of information that you're, you were asking about. And that was identified as a good thing to do. There's a price tag put to it. Um, it was never uh, funded. In fact, as, as I understand it, we've been funding the landslide hazard program at the survey at about the level of what it costs us to send two soldiers to Afghanistan for a year. And we've been doing that for about a decade. So, um, you know, I, I actually think that, you know, greater investments in doing landslide hazard research with the USGS, and I'm an academic scientist, I have nothing to gain from that, um, I think it's just, it would be a very valuable thing for society to invest in. That was Dr. David Montgomery, professor of Earth and Space Sciences at the University of Washington, talking with KGNU's Jim Pullen about the tragic landslide that buried Oso, Washington in March 2014. Jim Jim will bring us more science stories from the UW, including a theoretical physics study that asks the question, can we detect whether the universe is a simulation? Thanks to Jim for today's story. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Jim Pullen, who also helped with the headlines. Our engineer was Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler and additional music by George Winston. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. <laughs>